welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. Thomas Burney. He's a psychiatrist and the founding president of the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. He's also the author of the best-selling book, The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, and the recently released book, The Embodied Mind. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. So um, Dr. Bremi is a psychiatrist, and I just uh, was introduced to him a few weeks ago by a, co- a person who I did a podcast with, also did a podcast, Dr. Bremi. And as we've chatted a little bit, I've looked over his material some. Um, there's a growing group of us that are coming to the same conclusions about the human body. And he just recently wrote this book called The Embodied Mind. I've not read it yet, but I've read uh, bits of it and know about it. But he's uh, accomplished. He's published 47 scientific papers. He's the founding editor-in-chief of the AAPPAH Journal, which stands for what, Thomas? Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. So I want to spend a little time in that part of your journey, B, because you have some extremely interesting insights into the effect of the environment on the unborn child which I thought was extremely fascinating. So I know this, how you sort of started on your line of thinking years ago. Now you've really expanded in a lot of different directions. And I know a lot of us, you know, in this book, The Embodied Mind, but I'm just curious, um, where did you train? Where, Where did you do your psychiatry at? I did my psychiatry mostly in Toronto, University of Toronto, and then I won a scholarship to Harvard and I spent a year at the Massachusetts General Hospital. So did you practice general psychiatry or or did you go into this world relatively quickly? Oh no, I I practiced, uh, I became a full-fledged psychiatrist in 1966. Okay. And then I have been practicing ever since. I have slowed down, but I'm still practicing. In general psychiatry, or do you have a specialty within psychiatry that you? I do. I do adult psychiatry. I I like to work with couples, and I like to work uh, in what has become less and less popular: insight-oriented psychotherapy, instead of okay. just uh, what is very popular behavior kind of therapy, which I absolutely detest. Right. So. What I'm interested in to start with is this whole idea that of, of you just even conceptualizing the effect of the mother and the environment on the unborn child. And of course, the early you know few years are a big deal also. So I'm really curious how you came into that world and also some of your insights, what you learned during that phase of it. Sure. Well, um, you know, it's, it's always a problem. How far back do you go uh, when you try to explain how you have acted in your life. But I think I think what perhaps one good place to start was that um, when I was doing my psychotherapeutic practice, um, I once, right at the beginning uh, of, of my psychiatric career, I had a young man uh, who in the midst of discussing his dream started crying like a little baby. And um, I had enough presence of mind just to not interfere and let him go through that. 
And after about 10 minutes, he came out of it. And I asked him what happened. And he said that he had just found himself in a crib and he was crying for his mother. And then being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, he said, you know, there is something wrong with this picture because speaking of pictures, I actually have seen photographs of myself in a crib when I was a baby. And they were always taken in a white crib. Um, and so um, the crib that I just found myself in right now, a few minutes ago was blue. So there's something wrong with this picture. So I said, well, why don't you go home, talk to your mother? He was still a young man, his mother was alive. He came back next week and he said, this is amazing, but it seems that the first few months of my life, um, I spent it in a blue crib. And only later on, about three months later, my parents bought me a white crib. And that's the one that all the photographs were taken. But I did, I did spend the first three months of my life in a blue crib. Wow. Exactly. But you asked me about my education. I was very well educated. <laughs> I went to the University of Toronto, which is an excellent, excellent university. I went to Harvard. I taught at Harvard. Uh, so we were always taught that children before the age of two don't remember anything. Right. So that, so this this went against the grain. This went totally against everything that everybody of any you know statue and importance believed in. So, okay, so I, of course, put it out of my mind. But then, over the next few months, once in a while, I would come across similar experiences. I'm not going to go into all the, all the details, but they started sort of accumulating in my mind. And then a friend of mine, an obstetrician, told me that there was going to be a big meeting in Rome, uh, the World Congress of Psychosomatic Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh, so uh, that, that was around 1978. And um, so I, he said, you know, if you present a paper, you get better treated. You know, you, you get to, you know, be a speaker. Speakers are always better treated. Why don't you present a paper? So I said, sure. So I wrote a paper called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And lo and behold, I was very lucky. I, the paper was accepted. Not only was it accepted, but it was put on the best, the absolutely best morning uh, of, of the conference. I was, I was presenting with R.D. Lang. I'm sure you're familiar with his writing, Ronnie Lang, and many, many of the leading lights of psychosomatic obstetrics and gynecology. I mean an incredible opportunity. I got 20 minutes. I presented my paper and I put in everything that I knew about prenatal sort of memories and, and prenatal thinking and cognition. And there was tremendous excitement in the crowd. Like you could feel it, you know, sometimes how that happens. And so when I noticed how people were really taking to that, I said at the end of my talk, I said, if you want to continue this conversation, uh, please come at five o'clock to room this and this and, and let's continue talking. 
At five o'clock, there was a huge lineup, including Ronnie Lang and Sheila Kitzinger and like all kinds of incredible people whose names I have forgotten. Um, and they all came and I met them and we talked. And so that's when I got the idea of writing The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, which was published a few years later by Simon & Schuster. Uh, they did not like the title of Psychic Life because it's ESP and it's, you know, too far, too far out. Uh, so they substituted The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, um, which has now been published in 27 countries. It's in, still, it's still being published. It's still being read. Uh, and it's incredibly popular. But what has always bothered me, and I'm trying to answer your question still, what has, what has always bothered me was that all the research that I had at my fingertips, so to speak, in the 19, late 70s, early 80s, uh, was pretty persuasive in terms of giving children um, the scientific basis for memories starting somewhere after the second trimester. In other words, about six months after conception, but nothing before that. And yet I would come across people who seem to remember things that happened to them before that time. So that bothered me. And I'm not sure, Wesley, had remembered things before six months in the womb or after birth? No, no, six months six months in the womb, even going back to conception. Wow, okay. Okay, so, wow, exactly. So that bothered me. And um, I've always tried, you know, to, to rely on good solid science. And there was, there was no science at that time to explain that. So I sort of posited um, this kind of nebulous term, cellular intelligence and ascribed it to cellular intelligence, but actually I had no idea what that really meant. About seven years ago, I read in one of the many papers that I read constantly and virtually every day, scientific papers. I read about a 44 year old Frenchman who went to see his doctor because of a weakness in his left leg. And they did all kinds of tests. And to their absolute amazement, they found that the man had virtually no brain. What do you mean no brain? I mean exactly that he had no brain. He had a thin crest of cortical tissue and the rest was filled with fluid, which is called hydrocephalus in medical. Wow. Okay. This man, this, this, is, this is all in the scientific literature. I can give you, you know, all the references. They are in my book, by the way, in The Embodied Mind. Um, this man was a 44-year-old Frenchman, married with two children and working in the French civil service. For all intents and purposes, he was as normal as you and I, or at least you. So, <laughs> no, don't, yeah, I talked to my wife first before we assume normality here. Right. So, you know, so I thought to myself, well, come on now. Now, how is this possible? Like, how is this possible? And so I started looking into the literature because, 
you know, I'm kind of a curious guy. And I found that actually um, a lot of children when they had, when, when, when they had epilepsy, uh, intractable epilepsy, uh, they were often, um, surgical procedures were made to remove part of their brains, sometimes very large parts of their brains, and they continued to act normally. Also, then I looked into adults having brain tissue removed. And again, many of them, not all of them, but many of them continued to act normally. So when I came across that, I thought to myself, there has to be some kind of a backup system here. There has to be some kind of a backup system in the brain, just like we have on our computers, you know, uh, on, your, uh, on your cloud or wherever you have your backup system, there has to be a backup system in the body. And where could it be? Well, I thought it has to be in all the cells and all the tissues of the bodies working together. So that's when I started seven years ago, uh, reading as much as I could on this and put together, you know, the book that is now The Embodied Mind. Uh, which really shows that, you know, through evolution, which started with unicellular organisms, we have gradually become more and more complicated, right. but we have not lost any of the gains that we made when we became unicellular organisms. So I'm just going to pause there for a second to give you a chance to ask questions. So I just want to back up just for a second. So I want to, on the second podcast, I want to go to this part really clearly because we have a worker that meets twice a month. We have scientists from all over the world and we were, we're definitely going to ask you to be one of our speakers at some point, but the clear consensus is, is that the nervous system and the rest of the body are just one unit. There's no real separation at all. And as you know, from talking to Bruce Lipton and, obviously your knowledge and this new knowledge to me, by the way, that each living cell in a Petri disc can do just fine on its own. It doesn't need a human body to stay alive. So each cell is intelligent enough to stay alive. Then you have specialization of tissues and kidneys and livers and nervous system. And so, you know, as, it, as the cells became more specialized, you had to have communication systems. But as you well know, there's these little proteins or molecules called cytokines, which is the basic communication thing. Then you have slime forming, then skin, and all sorts of things happening. So life evolved from one cell up, as you pointed out so clearly. And to think that just because we have a neocortex that thinks, which is only relatively 100,000 years old compared to billions of years of life, it doesn't make sense that this neocortex would be running the show. Right. I mean, it's part of the show. In my, in my, I, I know I'm being a little simplistic here, but... Is that line of reasoning make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Yes. To me, anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what this group has come up with. And, and what I didn't realize is that the neuroscience research has been there for at least 30 years, now down to the immunology level. And do you know Steve Cole's work out of UCLA by chance? Have you seen his work? Yes. 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 You know, would you write down to the genomic expression? Of course, you know, Bruce Lipton's work with the epigenetics is that your environment causes your body to have different gene expressions. It changes the genetic code. You have epigenetics. I mean, 
And then the other thing that I've learned also, again, from an orthopedic, orthopedic surgeon standpoint, who's very structurally oriented, I mean, the brain is like Switzerland. It can do anything. It takes all these signals coming in and it creates signals that allow you to survive. It's incredible how adaptable the whole body is, not just the nervous system. So going again, I just want to go back just so we don't miss this point, because I think it's incredibly fascinating. Going back to that first six months of life in the womb, what, in, in simplistic terms, what does this fetus feel? I mean, what does it know? What does it learn? What, what, how does the environment actually affect this living creature inside the womb? Well, um, it can affect it, you know, in many different ways. There is, uh, obviously there's the biological effect, which is, you know, very, very easy to follow. You know, uh, if, if, for example, the woman is stressed, if the woman is, if the mother of the child is producing stress hormones, adrenaline, noradrenaline, cortisone, all those kinds of things, they have a direct effect on the formation of the central nervous system, as well as on the immune system. So, you know, all of that can be described in great detail and all of that is known. And of course, the moment that your nervous system is affected, and again, I can go into great detail, but just, you know, for, for easy understanding, uh, what happens in the brain is that if there is too much, too much uh, cortisone, uh, too many stress hormones, uh, the, the brain is not going to develop according to its original genetic um, destiny, okay? So instead of, instead of certain, certain neurons going to a certain place in the brain, they will not go there. Or if there is really, really a lot of stress, they will actually be destroyed so that the architecture of the brain of that child is already going to be unhealthy when that child is born. It will be imperfect. So that child is starting with a, you know, with a, the hard wiring of the computer already has been affected. So naturally, you know, if the hardwiring is, is poor, if the hardwiring is not ideal, uh, then of course the computer is not going to function very well. So no matter how much software you put into it, it's not going to function. So I think one point to the audience, I, I do see this over and over again, um, where people think stress is a psychological construct and stress is just a threat. And then your body's chemical response is the problem. I mean, stress is a total body response to a threat. And so your whole body responds with cytokines, inflammation, metabolism, cortisol, all these stress hormones. So the entire organism responds to a threat as a unit. Yes. So I'm trying to come up with a different term, but I use the word unit response. I don't use the word mind-body anymore because it implies a separation in the first place. So I've gotten rid of that term and just talk in terms of how the body responds to the environment as a unit. And you, you know, you're not going to fly a Boeing jet without a computer. You certainly are not going to run. The, and the Boeing jet has about 2 million parts and the human body has about 30 trillion cells. So you're not going to run this human body without a central nervous system to coordinate the efforts. It makes no sense. So the separation part of it is interesting. 
So when you talk about the word stress, you say, okay, the mother's stressed out about work or whatever is going on. Why would that affect the baby? And I want to say it the obvious to you, but I want to say this for the audience, is you change the body's chemistry. And that's what life is about, about how do you respond to your chemical signals in your body? Mm. I mean, even the brain itself has neurotransmitters, which are chemistry or chemicals. So mm. the body, the brain itself is a physiological structure. It's not a circuit board. Right. So I know I'm saying the obvious to you. So that's why where you talk about stress the first six months of life that you're actually making very definite changes on the human brain right there in the womb based on your stress. And so I think that's really, really interesting. Um, so how about, right, let's take the first two years of life. And I, I like to finish up this part of the podcast, which is a comment on the adverse childhood experiences, which we all, most people are familiar with. It's called adverse childhood experiences. And this is like physical, emotional, sexual abuse and neglect, and also mother or father in prison, drug abuse, et cetera. So if you're raised in a stressful environment, it has an impact that lasts the rest of your life, it has a dramatic effect on your quality of life and your health. So I'm assuming some of the same process of your whole body absorbing the environment in not such a great positive way as far as your genetic expression, et cetera. So can you comment on the ACE scores in human development and why you think there's such a profound effect on the human experience? I'm not sure what you're asking. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, we have, we have stress in the womb and then the adverse childhood experiences is the score where you have a certain amount of abuse in the family or chaos in the family. And so the data shows that there's double heart disease, double suicide, anxiety, depression, short lifespans. So what, how, why do you think that these adverse childhood during the first two years of life has such a dramatic effect on the rest of people's lives? Oh, well, yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it's really very basic um, because, uh, well, there are several reasons. One, in, in terms of the womb, uh, when in the womb, cells develop at an, at an incredible speed. Like I have forgotten, you know, how many millions of new cells are born every minute of prenatal life but it's huge, okay? Wow. Because, because we are starting, you know, with one unicellular organism, right? Uh, when, when the ovum gets uh, impregnated, right, by the sperm, so it's just one cell, and then they start dividing and dividing and dividing, and there are millions of new cells. So when you have that kind of overproduction, all those very, very young cells are very immature, and very vulnerable to stress. As we get older, uh, our cells uh, are, are hardier and more resistant to stress. So one of the reasons that prenatal life and the, the first two years of life are so important is because our body is so young and it's growing so fast. So the faster it grows, the more vulnerable all the cells. Right, okay, got it. Okay, so that's on a biological level. On a psychological level, of course, uh, everything is new to that child, to that being. So there are no, uh, I wouldn't say that there are no residual memories because there are memories going back into the womb. Uh, children, for example, have been shown at the end of the 
last trimester to have dreams and they have you know that you can do you can do electroencephalograms and show that children have ram sleep so therefore they must have dreams and children and so so there is mental life uh prior to birth but not very much uh, when the children are born of course everything is fresh so everything goes in and has an incredible impact. And if you have ever watched, you know, uh, very young children, six months old or 12 months old, like they're just constantly looking around and they are just constantly absorbing everything around them. So they are much more impressionable. So those few, first few years are incredibly important because they just take in uh, like blotting paper, everything that's around them. Unfortunately, they can also take in the wrong impressions, okay? It's not, they, they don't always uh, arrive at the right conclusions. And, you know, I, I, I just saw a young man today, you know, who's, who told me that ever since he can remember being a child, he was anxious anxious. Uh, he describes how he would hold on to the door of the kindergarten with all his might and resist being taken in. He was so scared. Why? I don't know. Uh, I've just seen him today for the first time. Um, but something must have happened to him. Right. That's scared, right? Right. And so um, in answer to your question, I think those early years when children are very impressionable and everything is new and all the cells are growing at a huge uh, speed, um, that is when actually very often people pay the least attention to them. And that is, Interesting. The, that is the most important time. Interesting. Wow. So Thomas, thank you for this part of the podcast. I will, on the second um, part of this podcast, uh, we'll start here in a few minutes, I'd like to talk about really how our bodies, every cell in the body is actually responding to the environment in its own way. It's not just the brain and the nervous system, it's the whole whole body responding. So I do want to go into some detail on that. So um, we tell the audience, you, I know you've written several books, and I know the most recent one is called The Embodied Mind. Um, do you have any final comments to the group about how we access your thoughts and materials and what your basic message is to the world right now? Why did you write these books? Um, well, I think, I think the important, you know, the important thing is that we have to pay more attention to our bodies. Um, we have already discussed the fact, you know, that we live, live, we live in a society which is very, which has been patriarchal forever and ever. And part of the patriarchal society is that it creates a hierarchical social structure and everything depends on who is at the head of the tribe, the head of the family, the head of government, how to get ahead. It's all about the head. And what I'm trying to say is that this vertical system was unconsciously adopted, adopted in medicine and it does not serve us well. So my work shifts the emphasis to bottom up instead of top down uh, communication. And so I'm asking for a more balanced approach to the body and health. And this okay. has 
far-reaching, far-reaching consequences every which way you look at it. Well, thank you. And again, we're just you know, barely um, putting our toe in the water as far as the depth of his knowledge. He has incredible insights. So I'm anxious myself to read this book, The Embodied Mind. And uh, you know, Thomas, thank you very much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Thomas Verney, for being on the show today and explaining the concept of the embodied mind and how it manifests both before birth and in the first few years of life. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.